Thank you. Hey, first off, give the sound crew in the back just a round of applause, please. Please give them. Uh, I submitted my slides this morning, and my system was not compatible at all with their system, and so they spent like an hour trying to figure out how to make, so I don't even know if it's going to work, but I hope it does. If not, take back that round of applause. <laughs> hey, y'all, it, it's really good to be with you. Um, I'm excited. Uh, we're going to be continuing on in our uh, sermon series on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in the Beatitudes. We're going to be finishing up the Beatitudes, which I'm really excited I get to do that with you all. I know John Hughes, I think he preached last week. We were out of town, um, and I'm sure he did incredible. Um, and so we're going to jump in in a moment, but I just want to recap a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's kind of where Jesus launches what his kingdom would look like if his kingdom people would follow him. It's really cool. Matthew, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, the more you begin to kind of dive into the Bible, uh, the more beauty you just see in it. It's not just some people writing down some stories about Jesus, although that is kind of what it is. Um, but Matthew, if you have, um, some people have like red letter Bibles where like it, it highlights Jesus's words in red. Um, it's really cool. If you ever look through Matthew, you'll see five sections of just Jesus's words in reds for, for like paragraphs upon paragraphs upon paragraph. And, and Matthew's gospel is very Jewish. Um, in, in its nature, he quotes a lot of the Jewish prophets in the beginning and at the end. And the Beatitudes kicks off the first of the first five parts of Jesus speaking um, in Matthew. And Jesus does this. It, it, it um, is kind of backdropped by the Torah. Uh, the Torah is the first five books of the Jewish Bible, of our Bible. Um, and so Matthew is trying to reframe what the law looks like for people that are now following God. It's really, really cool. Uh, Matthew is doing this very intentionally, and he wants us um, to see it and, and for people to learn about this. And so this, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, it's the first section of the rewriting, of the re-understanding of what the law looks like for God's people. And in this, Jesus is kicking it off with, hey, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, this is what it should look like. This is what your life should look like. This is what your family's life should ideally look like. This is what the church should look like. And often, it doesn't look like that, um, but that is okay. That is why we are sitting in this section of Scripture just trying to learn and understand who does God want us to be? What does it really mean to be his people? Luckily, the answer isn't hard. Living it out is. <laughs> and so, it's important for us to ask that question as we approach this scripture time and time again, like we've done over the past month and a half almost. What should God's kingdom look like to those who are following Jesus? And so I'm going to read first the Beatitudes that we've already gone through, and then we're going to um, jump into the next section. And so this is Matthew 5. This is, sorry, uh, 3 through 9, the ones that we've gone through. And it says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they will see God. 
And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we read that last verse in, in verse 9, blessed are the pure in heart and the peacemakers. And I kind of took that to heart. I was like, all right, I'm going to try and be a better peacemaker at our house. There's seven people living in our house, um, a lot of children, including myself. And, uh, <laughs> and so um, that day, after that sermon, I went home. And uh, this is probably going to get me in a lot of trouble. We decided to make um, bacon and eggs and biscuits. And um, Brielle, I think I've told you this, Brielle has a superpower. Uh, within about 10 to 12 minutes of making bacon, she runs in the kitchen frothing, just saying, bacon? And you can't get her out. Like, you can push her, you can throw her. She will not leave. She'll just stand waiting for the bacon. Um, but you can throw it, the next picture up. Um, someone in our house, I, don't, I won't say who, um, burnt. The biscuits. Uh, we, we found out that the smoke alarm is not the timer for the food. And so, but I texted Bryce in a very nice way. And I said, I'm trying to be a peacemaker, Bryce. I didn't say anything about the specific person <laughs> who um, may or may not have burnt lunch. And it was okay. We ended up just taking the top and the bottom off and uh, just ate kind of the middle. Um, <laughs> but part of this is there's really practical ways to live out. What, is it, what does it look like to, uh, there's a lot of husbands not making eye contact with me and a lot of wives I can see <laughs> smiling and grinning. Um, I, I didn't say who it was at Burnett. It could have been Brielle. You never know. Um, but <laughs> the, the practicality of, of just embracing little moments throughout the day and making a joke of it, because as you make a joke of it, it, it becomes easier to kind of make it a part of your life there has to be an intentionality at some point of what does it really look like for us to begin to impart this wisdom of Scripture into our lives because the Holy Spirit, he's working, and are we trusting him to, right? And so we're going to continue to move on. And I was reading this book by um, one of my favorite theologians, John Stott. Um, he's an Anglican theologian. He just passed away um, about a year or two ago. And he, he words this part of scripture as the introduction of what does it mean to live under the crucified Christ? What does it mean to be a part of Jesus' kingdom if he is the crucified Christ? If he really is God who came down in human flesh, died for us to bring us into his kingdom, if he really is the one who defines what is good, what is evil, if he defines what does it mean to follow him, then this is a starting point in which we need to look and begin to think, does my life even resemble any of those things? And often as I meditate on this, um, it's no. Because <laughs> those are very difficult things to do. They're very countercultural things to do. They're very counter-American things to do. It's just difficult. But he also says this, you cannot be a part of a kingdom in which the person is ruling that kingdom unless you pick up your cross alongside him and carry it. You cannot be a part of a kingdom that you're unwilling to die for if the person who started that kingdom died for it. I hope that makes sense. But what he is really saying is this should be hard because it does not make sense according to our human standards. I don't want to be meek. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to have humility. <laughs> those, are, those are things that don't promote myself. 
But that's the entire point of living under God's kingdom is that we are to pick up our cross each every day and carry it alongside Jesus. And so as we have that framework in mind, I hope thinking about that right now, we're going to dive into the rest of Matthew and check out what Jesus says next. Um, This is Matthew 10 through 16. This is what we're going to be looking at. Um, I'm going to read all of it, and then we're going to focus on a small part of it. But it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he goes on and it says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to first deal with um, verses 10 through 12 because it's, it's kind of difficult, and it's also um, it's difficult on multiple fronts. I don't think many of us in this room are being persecuted in a very real way in which we wake up and we're crying, thinking, I don't know how I can do it one more day. Am I going to die? Is my family going to die? That might be happening in other parts of the world, but that's just not the ideal of persecution. So I want us to take that, just kind of throw it away for a second. Although that is real, I don't think it's real for our culture and for what we are dealing with on a daily basis. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Um... It doesn't mean because you're a really good person or because you're standing up for some really good ideas. It means, blessed are you because you're being persecuted for your right standing with God. Are you somehow admitting this incredible righteousness that God has given you and people are seeing that? And it goes on and it says this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. And I'm just going to stop right there. A lot of us can be like, oh, I said this really stupid thing on Facebook. Sorry, I said this really profound thing on Facebook, and a ton of people got all angry at me, um, and therefore I'm being persecuted. Um, And that is not what Jesus is talking about here. I think I've shared this story with you all before. Charlie and I took a trip to WVU, and there was a guy standing out in front of the student center screaming about how the moon landing was not real. Um, I didn't, everybody just kind of weaved their way around him, right? In that guy's mind, I'm sure he's thinking, I'm being persecuted. And I think so often Christians do the same thing. Why do people hate us when all we do is scream at them? (laughs) I didn't want to have a dialogue with that person, right? No one did. In fact, the entire group, we were told beforehand, just don't make eye contact and move as quickly as you can into the student section, into the student center, right? There was no good conversation happening. There was no engaging in what was happening. But in so many of our minds, we think about, what does it mean to be persecuted? Well, I'm really loud and bold in unhealthy ways that don't actually engage in conversations that lead to Jesus. Therefore, I'm just being persecuted. (laughs) Now, I'm I'm not saying 
That is untrue or true. I'm just saying. What Jesus is talking about right here, I pause because the next words are so important to focus on. Because of me. Because of me. Because of Jesus. Are you being persecuted? Are you feeling tension in your lives because, man, God is visible? It's not necessarily because of your words or the things you might stand for politically. Because there are people on both sides of the spectrum that are followers of Jesus, that are frustrated at quote-unquote persecution. Are you being persecuted? Or are you feeling tension in your life because of Jesus? Because your stance in following him, because of, as I've read the beginning of the Beatitudes, are you feeling persecuted because of that? It is impossible, I will say this, it is impossible to live out the Beatitudes in a way that glorifies God and not see and feel conflict as you engage with this world. This world is very counterintuitive to Jesus' culture, and that is important to acknowledge that this world is full of brokenness and sin, and sin is just very easily a separation from God. And so if one kingdom is separated from God and one kingdom is following God, they're going to look very different. And as they collide and clash, there's going to be conflict. And so um, John Stott, one of, like I said, one of my favorite theologians, he breaks this down into, um, into three sections that I think are really important because I want to, once again, change our framework from persecution of I'm going to be killed to a persecution of I'm going to try and follow Jesus to the best of my ability, and it's probably not going to align with this world, with maybe even my friends, my family, my colleagues. And so he says this. He tries to break it into a framework of, of three things. The first one is this, self-denial. And as you think about self-denial, you're like, wait, does that mean that I just stop Caring about myself? No, that's not what that means. Self-denial means that you are no longer the most important thing in your life. In fact, it's impossible to be insulted or to, or to feel like, oh, gosh, that person said that terrible thing about me. I'm just broken to my core if you're not the most important thing. If proclaiming Jesus is the most important thing, insults don't actually hurt that bad. Now, I'm not trying to say insults still don't hurt. They do. But only when Jesus is reigning in your life as king do insults begin to make sense. Because it's no longer an insult aimed at you. It's an insult aimed at you following Jesus. And that's a big difference. Are you, do, are you willing to deny that you are the most important thing in the world, or is Jesus? It's crazy, because as you read in like the beginning of Acts, right, as the church starts and the disciples start doing all these incredible things, once Jesus is raised um, from the dead, he goes into heaven, and the Holy Spirit um, comes upon his, his believers, right? <clears throat> Do you remember what happens when the disciples, um, they're put in front of the governing, governing authorities, and they're beaten, and what do they do once they're beaten? They freaking celebrate. Sorry, but they celebrate. <laughs> why, do, I, why does that make sense? The Beatitudes. Literally, 
they're celebrating because we're finally following Jesus because 40 days ago, we completely abandoned him. They're not celebrating because this is wonderful. It, it feels so good to be beaten almost between an inch of our life. It's so great that everyone is disowning us and hurting us and screaming at us. They want us to go away. No, they're finally understanding for the first time that this whole movement, it's based around Jesus. And the thing that he's calling them to is incredibly difficult. But they're finally celebrating because they're doing it. <laughs> they're finally doing it. They're finally seeing the Beatitudes lived out in their life in a way that just doesn't make sense. There's this um, theological term, it's called mortification. Do you want to write that down? You can. Um, I think I have a slide up there that, that might quote it. And mortification, it is the sustained determination by the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of your body so that through Jesus' death, we may live in fellowship with God. This is a part of the self-denial process is that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us that live, but him that lives in us, right? Therefore, every day I wake up and it's Brian, <clears throat> I can choose to live the life that Brian used to live. It was pretty fun. Or I can choose to live into the life that Jesus has for me. It is an important distinction because it takes precision, I would say. And it takes being true and real with yourself of, am I actually waking up and am I hungering to read scripture and be, being in God's presence? Because the second one was self-affirmation. And I'm not talking about self-affirmation as in stare in front of a mirror and just tell yourself really nice things about yourself. Um, although I want to do that every time I look in the mirror. Um, <laughs> no, that, that can't have its place. But I'm not talking about some new age self-affirmation Love yourself no matter what's going on around you or who you are or anything like that. No, we, we take our sins seriously or serious. But self-affirmation takes into consideration that we do not hate ourselves. Why? Because Jesus has redeemed us. Right? God values us. He sees us and he says, I want to make something so much better out of your life. So much better. Just trust me. Just follow me. This idea of self-denial is losing ourselves so that Christ can reign in us. And self-affirmation is just trying to live into that. Jesus, who do you want me to be? We can't do the Beatitudes ourselves unless we're looking towards Jesus and saying, Jesus, who do you want me to be? And living into that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the next is this, self-sacrificial love. Because as we begin to look at, Jesus, who do you want me to be? We see that who he wants us to be is an image of himself. A person willing to create and, and be around a community that is self-sacrificing. Jesus didn't just die because it would be a good idea. He died for a community. He died for his people so that they could become his people, so that redemption could take place in a beautiful way. I think these three things are so foundational for us to understand 
why do we even read the Beatitudes? Or how do I begin to put them in a place? Persecution happens when these three things are made intentional in a believer's life. Because we, once again, we can create persecution by, doing, by just doing really dumb things, <clears throat> which we see all the time Christians doing. And it's a shame. But when these three things happen, when, we're, when we empty ourselves of, I'm going to choose actively to not follow my own desires and to follow Jesus' desires, and as I'm doing that, I'm going to look back towards this community and we're going to do it together, persecution is going to happen. Because you have an, a community filled with the Holy Spirit moving towards a community that is not. It's going to happen. The next slide, um, it says this, to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for Christ's sake. I remember reading that quote and um, just thinking, wow, I don't, I don't experience a lot of that in my life. And I'm in like full-time ministry. <laughs> and uh, it made me just stop and think, am I, am I really following Jesus in a way that God wants me to? It's a question and it's a statement that I think all of us, I mean, as, as we've looked at and studied these Beatitudes, just think about your own life. And maybe it's just that everyone around you is a, is a Christian and they're all kind of following you. And if so, um, great. But you should probably leave that to move into the world where people don't know Jesus. But you're, if, if you're in a community of people that don't know Jesus <clears throat> and everything's kind of hunky-dory and fine, there's probably not something that's, that's right. There's probably something that just needs adjusted. And I'm not telling you to go and to make conflict. I'm telling you to go and be Christ. Because as Paul says, the world is dying. And we are that life. The smell of Christ is death to those that are dying. It's, it's this weird concept. We don't need to look for persecution. We need to look towards Christ and what he promises us is that difficulty will follow. And that's not very fun. But neither is being in a sinful and broken world. I think that's the whole point. So now we're going to, so Jesus just, he's covering all of this. He's saying, hey, if you're going to live a part of my kingdom, be a part of what I am saying, humans, this is the, their purpose, is the Beatitudes. This is the start of the kingdom of God, the Beatitudes. If you're going to do this, you will experience persecution just like the prophets in the Old Testament. They were screaming at everyone, you're not following God. You're not following Yahweh. And what happened? They were all persecuted and killed. <laughs> Jesus is saying, it's the same thing. It's going to happen. And so he moves in to two analogies that I want us to move into for a second. So with that framework in mind, right, the Beatitudes, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a very real and tangible way? He gives us this analogy. I'll read this again. If I can find it. It says this. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you are the light of the world. You're a town built on a hill, and it cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I want to give you a second. Just turn to somebody next to you for like 30 seconds. And I want you all to figure out what are some uses of salt. It's got a lot of uses, particularly in this culture. But just turn to somebody next to you and think of maybe one or two like really practical uses of salt. You can definitely talk. And maybe like one unusual. I want to hear some really good if there's like crazy people who know what salt can do, um, uh, what, yeah, what can salt do? Go for it. 30 seconds. Awesome, you got 10 more seconds. All right, so let's hear it. What are some uses of salt? There's a lot of them. Make ice cream. <laughs> salt makes, oh, it does, old fashioned, that's incredible. Yes, Charlie. Mummification. Mummification. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That might be the opposite way of where I'm No, that's preservation. It is true. Yes. What was it? Killing slugs. Killing slugs. I love it. McFadden's awesome. <laughs> Ooh, yes, it does. It raises the density of water. You can float on it if there's enough. Burgers, did I see one? <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, any other? Ooh, yeah, it, see, it makes things salty. Good job, Amos. It de-ices the road. Yeah, it can, it can burn things. Are there? A salt and ice challenge. Okay, don't do it, but it is a thing. <laughs> Add bacon? For, for salt? Oh. It cures, oh, I see what you're saying. I'll get that. <laughs> it preserves meat. Yes, you're correct. Specifically bacon. If you're a Riggleman or my daughter, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's really cool. Jesus is using this analogy because it's, it's a really important analogy in this culture. Obviously, they had fridges to some degree, like underground, you know, kind of cooled things off. Um, but salt really preserved things in this time, right? Salt was a preservative. And I'm going to give you like a one-minute, two-minute nerd out time. So as I was kind of studying and researching um, salt, I, I came across like these three sections in the Old Testament that I, I just never noticed before. And the first one is this. It's in Numbers. Throw it up there. That's really hard to see. I'll read it for you. It says this. Num it's in Numbers 18, chapter 18, verse 19. It says, whatever is set aside, and this is for the priest, Levitical priest, 
Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I will give to you and your sons and daughters as a perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. The next one is this in Leviticus 2. This is for what people bring to God. This is Leviticus 2, 13. It says, season all of your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. And the next one is this. It says, don't you know, this is in 2 Chronicles, um, God is talking to his people about the king. He says, don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? I'd never seen those, or like I've read the Bible a lot of times, and I've never noticed those, like not even one time. But God uses this imagery, first of, um, with the Levites, that this is going to be a covenant of salt, that this is a preserved covenant that I am giving to you. It's not going to go away. And the second one, with the grain offering, is God wanted them to prepare the grain like they were actually going to use it, and then to give it to God. He didn't just want them to give the grain that like, they didn't really want. He wanted them to give the best of what they had, that it was going to be prepared, and they would give it to God. And it was this covenant of, whatever you give me, I'm going to bless you back with it. And it is a covenant between me and my people. And he calls it a covenant of salt. And then lastly, um, the kingship of David, which Matthew um, draws a big distinction of lineage between David and Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and king. And he says it's going to be a covenant of salt. And so it's, it's a weird, nerdy process. Um, and it, it's something I just, I saw and I was like, ah, I got to share this. I don't know if any of you actually care. But what God is using <laughs> is, is this idea that salt preserves. And it's something that should not go away. It's something that should be preserved in which a way that it, it's lasting. It's almost like a covenant. And I don't know if Jesus is specifically taking these ideas and putting them into this analogy. What I do know is Jesus is taking an analogy and saying, salt has a purpose, just like we do, just like the Beatitudes does. It has a purpose. In the Dead Sea, they, would, um, they could scoop salt, but if some of it was like mixed with dirt, it would actually become like tainted and it would become unsalty. And it was, just, it was just a bad grouping of salt. It was something that this culture interacted with a little bit that you really wanted to get pure salt so that it would preserve. Or if you got a bad batch that was kind of like salt and dirt mixed together, it just, it just wouldn't work. And what Jesus is telling us is that we are supposed to be salt. a preserving force in this world of what does it mean that God loves this world? What does it mean that God desires for this world to follow him? The beatitude shows us how to preserve God's desire for his people. Not fully and holistically, but it's the start. After that, Jesus uses this light analogy, right? And he says this, I'll just read it again. <clears throat> you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Jerusalem at the time was kind of like on a mountain, on a hill, and you have to walk up to it. You would see it from far away. The Jewish people knew and realized it's hard to hide a city that's on a hill. In fact, that's the point of building a city on a hill, so that it would be seen. The entire reason we are following Jesus is not only that we are redeemed and we are God's people, but it is so that we are seen by a world that is dying. This world desperately desires to see a light. They just see it in so many other places. I think it's because our light is so, it's just so dim. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That's just not the purpose. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men and women that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus, once again, is pointing back to the Beatitudes of, of living into his kingdom, of doing the good deeds that God has called us to. Why? So that people may see and praise him. This isn't just about being a good person. This isn't just about, I really want to be a good Christian. I mean, that has severe and significant applications for your marriage, your children, your neighborhood. But Jesus desires for us to do this because we are supposed to be a true light. Well, this world is creating all sorts of other lights of what really will give you happiness. Jesus says this. If you can throw up that next slide, this is from Oswald Chambers. Um, it's one of my favorite quotes. <clears throat> Jesus Christ never asked anyone to define his position or to understand a creed. But who am I to you? Or in our Bibles it says, who do you say I am? Jesus Christ makes the whole of humanity or of human destiny depend on a man's relationship to himself. There's a lot of things that Christians can be. Christians can be those snooty, snotty people that just want to be right about everything. They could be people that just will accept everyone or everything. But what Jesus really cares, the question that he really wants us to know and to answer and to ask other people is, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Is your salt I'm sorry, is your light, your life actually <laughs> salty? <laughs> is your life actually salty? Is your life actually a light? Or is it not? Jesus makes it, at least in this analogy, very black and white. That those who have been redeemed by God are a part of his kingdom and should be a force that interacts with this world in, in a way that is unlike anything else this world has to offer. Jesus did not just come and die a death because he loves us. He died so that he could redeem us. And I'm telling you right now, if you're in this room and you're like, I just don't know if my life is actually salty, have you asked this question to yourself? Who do you say Jesus is? It is the most important and foundational question you will ever ask yourself. Who is Jesus to you?
Who is Jesus to your family? And who is Jesus to your neighbors? Is he just a good person that you're kind of showing up to church with because your spouse tells you to or your parents tell you to? Or is he actually the God that created you and loves you like crazy and every morning you wake up and you know, you know, this God, he's crazy about me. He loves me. And for some crazy reason, he died for me so that I could be a part of his kingdom. Somehow he looked at me and saw something that was worth dying for. Y'all, that is an opportunity and a place where we should be and you can be. I mean, just read the rest of Matthew and everything leads to Jesus' cross. To go back to the beginning of this sermon, that we are people under Christ's cross. Because he was a God who died on the cross for us. He was a God who died under the cross for you and for me and for the people in the world. And that is why we need to be salt. That is why we need to be light. I have one final thought. Um, I don't know if I'm actually going to do this. Um, I don't know if any of you went to, there was a big dance recital, rehearsal thing for uh, Farah, right? Yeah, and so Brielle's been dancing, and uh, first dance was great. Brie and I showed up, and um, all the dancers were incredible. If any of your daughters or sons dance, I don't want to say anything bad. Um, <laughs> but it was a very long recital, I'll say that. I was, I was prepared for like a few small children's recitals, and it was everybody in like all of West Virginia, it seemed like. <laughs> and so they would, they would sprinkle, like the beginning was like the really good high school people who were like competing, and then there'd be some other people doing solos, and it'd be like the little kids who were kind of just like floundering. And if, you're, if your daughter wasn't in that, it was kind of like, this is taking forever. But if your daughter wasn't in it, you were like, that's her. And she's just failing the whole way through. And so, oh man, I got to show you this. There, was, um, there were two sections. It was like 10 minutes long, and they had to replay the song over and over three different times because it was such a slow and long process. And so the dance move these, these little girls were doing, they would, they would sit like this, and then I don't even know if I can do it. They would try and do like a push-up, and then they would roll. Ah! All right, it was like that's, here's the thing. I was one of those... I was one of those people looking like, just go faster. Just, and I'm sitting here, I'm like, that was actually hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they would do like a roll, right? And then they'd stand and they'd look for their parent. But then they'd get kicked in the back of the head by the next girl rolling. And, <laughs> and it, but it would also take forever. Then people were trying to do cartwheels and they, they couldn't do cartwheels. And it was like, I'm watching this thing and I'm like, this was adorable a minute in, but we're 10 minutes in and there's a group after that's going to do the same thing. Please. <laughs> Please, do a cartwheel. No, Brielle can do a cartwheel. I, I will not. Um, <laughs> and I think, here's the thing, though. To bring it, bring it in, final statement, thought. Stick with me. It can be really easy to look at yourself when we're talking about Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes right here, and just be like, I'm one of those floundering five-year-olds. Like, this just, I can't do it. Here's the thing, every one of those incredible like high school dancers that were killing it, I was like, wow, that's fantastic. Um, they were at that one point, right? They were just trying to roll across the stage. <laughs> and Jesus calls us to grow in him. 
and scripture promises us he doesn't leave us like orphans, but he sends his spirit to us. It is worth looking at your life and saying, Jesus, where do you want me to grow? How can I be a light? And just progressing. The Holy Spirit is trying to do a work in your life if you are following him. And Jesus desires for all people to come to know him. It, it will happen. At one point, at one point, I know my daughter will go from like flopping to doing something really cool, even though I still think she's doing something really cool. <laughs> and I know that God thinks so about you too. This is not an idea, the Sermon on the Mountain is not an idea to just convict you and to, to leave you helplessly walking out those doors saying, I'll never get this done. It is to encourage us and acknowledge, and for us to acknowledge that we have, a, we have a plan and a purpose and it is difficult, but we will get there. Especially when we do it together. So another shout out for small groups, you should be a part of one because it is impossible to follow Jesus in a real way without other people loving you and cheering you along as you grow in him. Be the light and salt of the world. This world needs it, and Jesus calls us to it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, I, I just thank you um, that, man, following you isn't just some crazy mystery without any guidelines or ideas. Um, you also don't just make it this rigid path. God, but there is, there is so much beauty in following you because you've created us each uniquely. We each have different gifts and talents that you've given to us because you're a good father. The hardest part is for us to trust you with the smallest amount of faith that, God, you are, you are doing something incredible in our lives. It's our job to wake up each morning and just acknowledge that I'm not the most important thing, that today I need to follow you, Jesus. And in doing so, I need to look towards those others who are with me and encourage them in sacrifice and self-sacrificial love. Father God, I pray that you would just do incredible things in the lives of this congregation. That in a year or two from now, man, there would be people in this, in this congregation that would see growth in, in just their, their marriages, the way they parent, the way that they love and interact their family members or community members, their neighbors. God, and that people would come to know you. That this is the point to glorify you, Jesus. Once again, I thank you that you don't leave us alone, that you're with us every step of the way, and you empower us by your spirit. So Jesus, we pray this and thank you for this in your name. Amen.